It is a great privilege to uh, be with you and to have enjoyed the ministry of uh, the first two lectures and uh, to be and to be given this opportunity to speak on this subject of abortion. And indeed, uh, the as we had one conversation at least uh, over today, uh, we need to deal with uncomfortable subjects. Uh, there's none of us who like to deal with certain of these subjects, but we are driven by conviction that we must, as Christians, uh, face these issues. And that is the uh, driving uh, of even the title of the uh, talk today. So I want to thank uh, the uh, minister and congregation of this church uh, for inviting me to speak on this subject. The Abortion Act was introduced by David Steele as a private member's bill, uh, backed by the government, was passed on the 27th of October 1967 and came into effect on the 27th of April 1968. As you can tell, I was born in Leicester in 1968. Uh, returned back to Dublin at the age of two in 1970. Like so many Irish, we uh, benefited from the uh, opportunity, or at least my parents uh, benefited from the opportunities of work when I was very little in Ireland, uh, working over here in the 1960s. So I quickly got rid of the Leicester accent and uh, adopted the one you can hear now. Of course, the act that I mentioned, uh, you know all too well, has been responsible for the deaths of countless millions of lives since. I was born in England only a few months after this law was passed, so conceivably I could have been one of the first victims of that law. Back in my own uh, country on the September the 7th, 1983, a referendum was held in the Irish Republic and it was to enshrine the right to life of the unborn because there was a huge debate uh, in Ireland at that time. Uh, the pro-choice lobby and so on were driving and the, the referendum was held. And back in 1983, the result was a resounding two-thirds majority uh, although, interestingly enough, even in Dublin, there were four constituencies where uh, the pro-choice view won, even back in 1983. So the pro-choice lobby, and they were interviewed afterwards, and they saw this, as, and they stated back in 83 in the, in the interviews, uh, it's only a matter of time. It's only a matter of time. Now, it took up till uh, last year to actually have another referendum and the result was reversed. Uh, this time it was two-thirds in favour of abortion. And we indeed mourn that fact. The response of Christians is to grieve firstly. We see this with Nehemiah, how he grieved regarding the state of Jerusalem. We are to weep we are to mourn at every advance of wickedness, every 
step of the way where sin and evil is progressing or bringing our nations into more of an atheistic and God-hating frame of mind. I want to consider four uh, points with you. Uh, The philosophical context, uh, the present state of affairs, what say the scriptures and objections answered. I'm going to keep an eye on Peter because you can look, um, uh, raise a hand if I'm going too long and uh, I'll try and skip some of my notes. I'm in the position of maybe having too many notes. If I do pause for a moment, it's because I'm deciding what to uh, maybe pass over. So let us consider the philosophical context. Abortion, and let's be under no doubt about this, abortion has a philosophical foundation. Now Charles Darwin has been mentioned in the first two sessions, and we are going to mention him again, because evolution is one of the main philosophical contexts of abortion. Because if we came from nothing, essentially, by the process of numerous accidents of evolution, well, then abortion is not really a problem. And, and we see this, don't we, with, the, uh, with, the, with some of the logic of, of the arguments. And then, but they, they slip sometimes. Because sometimes they will admit, oh, well, we, we don't believe in abortion up to birth. Well, what's the problem if we're the product of evolution? What's the problem with not only abortion up to birth, but what's the problem with killing a one-year-old or a two-year-old? Because all the arguments that are used for abortion can be equally applied to a six-month-old toddler. I don't have enough money to, to raise him. I'm not in a good place. I want to go to college and all these arguments. Well, if evolution is true, you don't need an argument. You just need to do what you want because you're just a product of chance. Joseph Goebbels Uh, regarding the Jews, said this, and this was the the logic, wasn't it, regarding the Jews. In response to a question, are the Jews human, this is what he said. Of course the Jew is a human being. None of us has ever doubted it. But a flea is also an animal, but not a very pleasant one. Since a flea is not a pleasant animal, we have no duty to protect and defend it, to take care of it, so that it can be so that it can bite and torment and torture us. Rather, we make it harmless. It is the same with the Jews. You see, what what he's saying is the Jews were a a lower level of life. Yes, they're, they're human life, but a much lower level of human life. And this is exactly the argument for abortion. Yes, we're we're not denying that, and those who are more honest, yes, it's it's human life, but it's it's a lower level. And therefore, it's okay to uh, just dispose of such a lower level of human life. This is the dehumanizing or the lowering of the, the, the status of the, of the child in the womb. So if they can convince us that the child is a, a lesser form of human life, well then they have, and we see that they've won the argument to date. We hear the terms, a a bunch of cells. And when 
one doctor is seeing two women, and, and the first woman walks into his clinic, and she wants to have her baby. He, he refers to it as your baby. The second woman walks in and wants to dispose of her baby, and he refers to it not as a baby, but as a fetus. You see, terminology is so vitally important, isn't it? The words we use. The words we use. To give a, maybe a strange illustration of this, my brother looked after a, a baby lamb for a while, and one of the local farmers needed a bit of help. And, but the farmer said, don't name it, because it's going to be slaughtered. Don't give it a name, because that will make it harder for you to give it back, knowing that it's going to slaughter. See, words, names, the, the, the phrases we use, and, and this, is all in a, uh, this is all part of, of their plan, and they, they know what they're doing, but they, and they know how to talk about these things. We should never submit to their ways. So the present state of affairs, and a lot of these you will already know, but let me remind you. Every day in the United States of America, approximately 3,000 abortions are carried out. Every single day. That is a Twin Towers every single day. Every single day. We as Christians must mourn that. We must weep. And one of the problems is that we, we become, even as Christians, we, we can become used to those figures. But, but if, if two towers in America every day of the week had two Boeings or large planes going into them every day of the week, killing 3,000 people, that's what's happening just in one country. I hope I'm able to quote the Guardian. <laughs> but this is what the Guardian stated regarding this country on the 17th of May 2016. This is what it said. The number of abortions carried out in England and Wales last year was the highest in five years, driven by growing numbers of women in their 30s and 40s who are terminating a pregnancy, official figures show. More women are having multiple abortions, according to the annual statistics released by the Department of Health. Almost four in ten terminations are now carried out on women who have undergone the procedure before. Now listen to this. Fifty women had each eight abortions. There was, to that point in 2016, 50 women had had eight abortions each. That's the reality, isn't it? That's the reality. Now we have, and this is a very much an up-to-date situation, we have the, the, the pressing to bring abortion on demand into Northern Ireland. We have the, uh, the Labour MP who pushed this issue, and it, I think the date is the 21st of this month, whereby if the, if the executive has not uh, reconvened, uh, my understanding is that the, the, that law will be brought into, into place. 
huge responsibility, isn't there, on our politicians. Um, our, our speaker, our second speaker, mentioned backbone. <laughs> and I thought, well, at least someone has backbone today. And, uh, you know, we have a lot of politicians, a lot of men in the pew, in the pulpit and in the pew, that don't have backbone. We as Christians need to mourn, but not to hide away in a corner. Not just to stay within these four walls. We need to mourn, yes, but we need to raise the alarm. We need to raise our voices. Because Nehemiah, we note, did not just mourn. He went to the king. He told him, and why should I not mourn? Why should I not grieve? And we should never give in. And we should challenge the indifference of society. We must challenge the indifference of a society who has grown used to murder. Who has grown used to the uh, killing and murdering of the unborn. And which inevitably will lead to other yet more and indeed equally grievous things. So what does the scripture say regarding these things because that's my remit to really argue from scripture again some of the things I will say are obvious but we need to restate the obvious we need to declare what the Bible says and my first introductory point to this point is this that truth must always be the basis in our modern day truth has literally fallen in the streets but it it was always that way when the Lord Jesus stood before a Pilate and Pilate said, what is truth? And it was this sort of almost disparaging question. What difference is truth? What do you mean by truth? As believers, the truth, not our emotions, not our circumstances. And again, as we even had a discussion briefly um, before this session, you know, we, there can be really difficult circumstances. We, we don't deny that. But that's not the issue. It's not the issue. Uh, and th- these are the, the arguments that were used in Ireland, I'm sure, are used here as, as well. What about this terrible circumstance? What about that terrible circumstance? As we said earlier, 50 women didn't have eight tragic events in their lives that led to the absolute necessity for abortion. Truth, not experience, not emotion, not feeling, not the majority, not what the majority thinks or feels. We, we see even today in this country that the majority are despised anyway. Isn't that true? So first argument from Scripture Probably the most obvious. God is the creator. God has made us. And we see that, don't we, in the very first verse. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. Doesn't try and prove it, just states it. But then, in Psalm 100, listen to the words of Psalm 100. Know ye, verse 3, know ye that the Lord, he is God. It is he that hath made us. But then it says something else. It follows. Listen to what it says. And not we ourselves. Get the emphasis. We are not in charge. That's what it's saying. We are not the creator. 
We are not the sovereign creator of the universe. That's what all the philosophies of the day, including evolution and atheism and so on, are telling you. You are in charge of your own destiny. You are in charge of your body. You own your body. Well, what Psalm 100 is telling us, and what Genesis 1 is telling us, we do not own ourselves. We are not in possession and in sovereignty over our being. God is. In contradistinction from ourselves and contrary to what society is telling us. And this is what we must boldly and confidently and passionately declare every day. That God has made us. But secondly, again... Clearly and basically, we are made in the image of God. Genesis 1. So God created man in his own image. So when we take life, and when we attack life and murder life, and murder the unborn, we are attacking the image of God. We are attacking God himself. Now Calvin has uh, a famous quote on, and I've known this quote for years, but I actually had to research where it was and uh, find out. It's it's in Daniel 6. And this is uh, Calvin's quote. Listen to what he says. For earthly princes lay aside all their power when they rise up against God and are unworthy of being reckoned in the number of mankind. We ought rather utterly to defy than to obey them when they are so restive to wish to spoil God of his rights. Isn't that wonderful? Just pause there for a moment. Calvin identifies the issue. They want to rob God of his rights. We, we hear human rights. My rights. Calvin says they seek to rob God of his rights. And he says, if you, if you got the quote, that we should not submit to such men. We must not submit to such men. When they defy God, we must defy them. He goes on, and this is the famous part of the quote. And as it were, to seize upon his throne and draw him or drag him from heaven. Now, thank God they can't do that. But if they can't attack the God who is in heaven, They do attack his image. They do attack his image. And they think they have the right to take away his image. It's a bit like uh, the bully, isn't it? What's one of the attributes of the bully? He rarely goes after the ones that are stronger than him. He tends to pick on the weaker, doesn't he? I'm sure many of us have memories of bullies and they, they... Spend their time looking for the weak to make themselves feel better. Well, that's... Abortion must be the most ugly form of that type of mentality where we actually attack the weakest, the most dependent form of human life. The ones who can't cry out for themselves. The ones who can't defend themselves. Uh, and we, we see, don't we? We see them. Uh, the, the, we see the, the people who get all upset when a lion is, is shot. Well, at least the lion has a chance. There's no chance 
for the unborn. Thirdly, the law of God forbids the taking of life. The sixth commandment, thou shalt not kill. God has not given us the right. And this is the the strange thing, is that they are so much against capital punishment, or they're so much against the execution of of the guilty, but they will execute the innocent. What sort of twisted morality is this? What sort of perversion is this? But then, one of my favorite points is how the unborn is described in Scripture. This brings us back to one of our earlier points. What do we call, what does Scripture call the unborn child? 26 times we see the the reference to with child in Scripture. It's with child. Never give up the, the biblical definition of pregnancy. With child. Not with fetus. Not with a bunch of cells. There's a child, there's a baby, there's a life. There's a human being in your womb. And this is what we must keep repeating. And that's why society wants us to shut up, as as David said earlier. They want us to shut up. They want us to stop speaking. But the more they want us to stop speaking, the more we must declare the truth the more we must speak the truth. Even if it means, as was said to Isaiah, keep speaking till there's desolation. Keep speaking, no matter what the consequence. No matter what the the results are down to God. We are not responsible for the effect. We are responsible to be obedient. To do what God says. And to proclaim his truth. And you see everything, again, the the, the second paper. This world wants God to shut up. This world wants God just to, to mind his own business. They want him not to exist. And they will. And if I can make one comment, maybe again on what David said, I think there is a responsibility in the pew. And I'm not saying he, he wasn't saying that. But it's interesting when, when Paul said to Timothy in 2 Timothy 4, the responsibility, at least in that passage, was actually not put in the pulpit because Paul said to Timothy they are the ones who will gather to themselves teachers having itching ears there at least in that passage Paul puts the responsibility there so you need to those who are here always attend ministries that are glorifying to God always attend churches don't Go to those liberal churches. Go to places where the word of God is preached faithfully and passionately and without excuse and without apology. But listen how the listen to how the scripture describes the unborn in Psalm 139. 
Psalm 139 verse 14. You know these verses well. I will praise thee. For I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Not I was evolved. Not, not I just by chance came into being. No, I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Marvelous are thy works. And that my soul knoweth right well. And listen to this. They know what they're doing. They know it in their conscience. And that's why they want you to stop speaking. Because don't listen to what they say. Listen to the word of God. Every time you remind them of the truth, their conscience is telling them the same thing. They're, because it, if they really believed what you were saying was nonsense, they'd just let you go on. There's nobody going around trying to disprove the existence of a certain man that's meant to come around at the end of the year. Nobody is spending their time trying to disprove him because they know he doesn't exist. And yet, the, the, the twisted part of it is, if we went out on the streets and told children he doesn't exist, we would be accused of all sorts of silly stuff. My substance was not hid from thee, the psalmist says. God sees the unborn. God beholds the unborn in the womb. The child in the womb. I was made in secret, curiously wrought in the lowest parts of the earth. Thine eyes did see my substance, yet being unperfect. And in thy book, all my members were written. And in continuance were fashioned, when as yet there was none of them. How precious also are thy thoughts unto me, O God. How great is the sum of them. Isn't it wonderful that we have a God that the unborn is precious in his sight? Let us consider some of the objections. And we'll just consider these briefly. What about rape? What about those who become pregnant as a result of rape? And just as the, the previous speaker said, there's difficult questions. We, we must as Christians realize there are difficult questions. There are difficult issues. But here's the answer, isn't it? Given the choice between the, the rapist and, and the unborn child, what does the scripture say? We know the answer. The rapist should, should die. He should die. And yet here's again the twist of morality. That they're saying, no, we, we should never murder the rapist. Because he, he's, he's got rights. So let him out in the street again so he can do his wicked act again. But we'll, we'll kill the unborn. And there's so many examples, isn't there? of women who have had babies as a result of rape and have had wonderful healing experience as a consequence of having their baby. The, the, the baby has actually been the light in the midst of the trauma. And rather than the baby being a reminder of evil, it is a blessing from God in the midst of evil. Whereas when a woman is told, well, your answer is to have an abortion, there are two attacks on her body. 
two attacks. One is illegal and the other is legal, but both are immoral. Both are ungodly. And in fact, according to Scripture, the second one, if we were to give uh, a level of immorality, I would say the second is more immoral. Why? Because it is sanctioned by the state. The very minister of God, according to Romans 13. The very servant of God is saying to one of those under its care, your answer is to have an abortion. That is state-sponsored murder against the innocent. Oh, such a wicked generation. Such a wicked generation. From a medical perspective, Philippa Taylor writes this. The biggest trauma for victims is the devastating crime of rape or incest, which cannot be undone. Women who are raped and children conceived by rape are the two innocent victims of the crime. Abortion does not unrape a woman or remove the violence perpetrated against her. Research has found that those who had an abortion said it actually increased and compounded the trauma that they experienced from the rape. And that research is taken from a book called Victims and Victors, which notes, among other things, that Nearly 80% of the women who aborted a pregnancy conceived in sexual assault reported that abortion had made the wrong solution. It was the wrong answer. It wasn't the answer. Most women who had abortion said that abortion only increased the trauma that they were experiencing. In many cases, the book says, the victim faced strong pressure or demands to abort, and in some cases, especially those involving teenage girls, was even forced to have an abortion by others. In cases of incest or ongoing sexual abuse, abortion was frequently used by the perpetrator to cover up the abuse. And in many cases, the girl was given an abortion with no questions asked and then returned to the abusive situation. None of the women who gave birth to a child conceived in sexual assault expressed regret or wished they had aborted instead. Of course, another important biblical point is that in scripture it's the one who commits the crime is guilty the sin is not passed on to the son or the daughter God holds the individual guilty for his crime objection to the fetus is not fully developed not a fully developed human being and therefore it is acceptable to terminate again isn't it twisted that the fact that it's not fully developed is the argument. Reliance and dependence are not arguments for killing, but for protecting. We are to protect the weak. One of the condemnations in the days of Isaiah was that the weak were abused by the society, by the rulers, by the religious leaders. That's why God brought judgment upon the nation. They didn't look after the orphans or the widows. The first table of the law and the second table of the law were both being denied and rejected. Third objection. The woman is not in a position to raise the child. Again, could we apply this to the six-month-old infant? If the mother can't afford to look after the six-month-old, why not put that 
to sleep. If a woman, there was a woman close to um, where I lived who took a knife and killed her two-year-old, she was mentally disturbed. There's an excuse because of her mental condition. People were horrified. As the BBC said regarding the Oma bomb, that the shockwaves were felt throughout the world and the shockwave in our society was felt because of the horror. And yet the silent genocide, the silent holocaust of abortion continues. 60 million every year worldwide. Ten times the number of the Jewish Holocaust every year every single year the Lord says in Isaiah 49 can a woman forget her sucking child that she should not have compassion or the son of her womb womb? yea they may forget yet will I not forget thee behold I have graven thee upon the palms of my hands We thank God that we have a Savior who loves us. Fourth objection, my body, my choice. As we said earlier, this argument simply is untrue. Again, the child is completely dependent on the mother. My own granddaughter was born and her, she was born with her intestines and her bowel outside of her body. It's wonderful what they can do in modern medicine. She was kept in the, in the hospital for, for two months and they let gravity do. She was kept in the incubator and she was, for two months, the, the, the bowel and the, the, the intestine slowly worked its way by gravity back into her body. Wonderful. Wonderful expression of, of the, the wonder of, of modern medicine. The sad contrast is what the same hospital is doing now taking two months to save the life of a child that a few years before would would have had no hope the same hospital now is in minutes taking the lives of the unborn last objection fatal fetal abnormality David Quinn, writing in the Irish Independent, this was at the time of the referendum, he said this, The term is is extremely imprecise. So imprecise that it is probably impossible to properly define legally. It is therefore potentially highly misleading and should not have a role in this debate. This was used as one of the key arguments. Well, what if if the child is is beyond help? Have we all probably experienced doctors making a wrong diagnosis? Half the time I'm convinced it's it's guesswork. They're making their best guess. And yet when it comes, it's a bit like geology, isn't it? It's a bit bit like geology. Well, well maybe this, carbon dating, maybe that. It could be 1 million years or maybe 65 million years. Well, the child might be born with 6 months to live or 6 years to live. They're, They're guessing. They're guessing. 
uh, another Irish um, news journal ran a story of a couple who went to the UK. This is one of the big arguments that was used in Ireland. Oh, it's terrible, these women having to get on, about 3,500 women having to get on the plane and go to the UK. It's such a, it, it, it's just a compounding their, their emotion and, and, and all sorts of stuff. And uh, the journal ran this report, quote, they say that their child has been diagnosed with Edwards syndrome which could mean their child will only live for minutes or hours. Now, I researched this. Children with Edwards syndrome can live for 10, 12, 15 years. Now, they could die in minutes, but no doctor can tell you for sure. And can I say this? I, again, I had a daughter who had a miscarriage. She had a miscarriage of four months. And we went to family grave, and we had a ceremony and buried the remains of their unborn child. They, they named Jesse because the replies both, you know, we, could, we didn't know whether it was a, a boy or a girl. It was wonderful. It was wonderful to have that ceremony of realizing this is a human being that deserved or was worthy of the act of burial. And thank, we thank God for the life we thank God that we believe in a, in a world to come where even such a tragic event does not prevent that life. We are in battle with a philosophy of lies because they don't care about the truth. We, we have to realize this, don't we? We're in battle with a world that hates our God, hates his word, hates his Christ, and hates his people. When the people went into Canaan, they had to be reminded these are the enemy. We have to be reminded we are surrounded by the enemy. And we need as a wonderful picture of Joshua before he goes over to face Jericho. And just before, at the end of Joshua chapter 5, before he faces Jericho, he faces somebody else. The last three verses of Joshua 5, he faces the captain of the army of the host of the Lord. And he needed to be, he needed to be reminded of this. Joshua, you're not really the captain. I'm the captain. It's not by my Joshua. It's not by power. But it's by me. We follow Christ into the battle. We walk with him. He is our strength. He is our hope. He is our confidence. He is our joy. He is our exceeding great reward. For here's the wonderful truth. That it's an obedience to him. Not in success but simply in obeying him, we know the victory. We are more than conquerors through and by and in him that has loved us. Amen.